Welcome back to another On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend and colleague, John Marcus. This week, we have a special guest for you, Alan Bishop, the strength and conditioning coach for the University of Houston men's basketball program. Alan is one of the top in his profession, in my opinion, a deep, deeply thoughtful um, coach who takes the time to evaluate and thinks about what he does and what he has his athletes do. So in this wide-ranging conversation, you're going to learn everything about strength and conditioning to nutrition to trends and learning how to coach in the information age and all the way to how to choose the right job. So I think you're going to find this one very thought-provoking and very helpful. So I hope you enjoy. I want you two to know I had to take notes on my on my books <laughs> and thoughts since I knew it was coming. Oh and, man, and I don't read as much or as fast as uh, as some people in the room. Hey, this guy outdoes all of us. I'm over here trying to tread water as well. So, well, it was what was it? Well, you, you guys are in season, man. Like I don't I don't have the whole college like you know administrative like boohahas you guys deal with every day. When uh when you hit me up the other day and you said what books are you reading right now I chuckled because I was like okay like I I, I read but I, I work on one at a time <laughs> <laughs> and then I thought it was funny because like well you know what actually the other book I'm working on is Captain Underpants because that's the one I'm reading with my daughter at night <laughs> there there you go <laughs> you know, before yeah we go to bed. I mean it, so that's still like... reading you know I mean when I go up that's to probably... like visit my uh, nieces and nephews like we read like I don't know ten books a day you know because they're just I'm the reading uncle right. <laughs> I mean, that's so probably I just the get best. A books and I just let's go. The best reading you can do, right? Well, I think you were you were asking me, uh, and again, like like I'm embarrassed by it because as fast as you read, it took me like five weeks to get through uh, Total Recall, which is a book I read before Buddha's Brain. And Total Recall mm-hmm. is an Arnold biography. Yeah. And it's 650 pages. As I'm looking at it, I'm just like, man, I'm like, I only got five minutes here, 10 minutes there. I'm like, I'm never going to get, get through this. this. Yeah. And <laughs> what are you reading now? Uh, same one. <laughs> yeah. I'm on chapter 13 now. <laughs> I hear you. Well, you know, the long books are good. It's not about, you know, number of books. It's about what you get out of it, right? Yeah. So I've had like. Really crappy books that are like your standard 150 page books, and then really good books are like 89 page books, and then awesome books are like 700, you know, 90 pages. Well, Just it matters if the author is good or not. I mean, Steve knows this. It's hard to write well and have it be condensed and concise and actually say something meaningful. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure your editor knows that too. Just like, hey, half this is crap. Cut it. Yep, that's how it goes. <laughs> It's uh, it's interesting too because uh, one of the you know one of my mentors uh, who you know Charles Poliquin, um, just a great great strength coach. His biggest thing was knowledge not applied is wasted. So if you're paying for a conference, you're paying for a seminar. If you're reading a book, if you bought a program, if it, like at least you better take one thing away from it. So with with any book or anything, that's kind of my biggest thing is what is my one biggest takeaway that's applicable that'll make my life better because I just invested five weeks in the Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> biography, so yeah. my life better be better in, in one way for it. Yeah, so I like that. You know, I do like at the back of the books, I like write my like, you know, whether it's one thing or a couple things, or I was like, all right, w- what am I trying to get, take away and actually apply this? Because like I hate. I hate when I read something, I'm like, oh, this is kind of cool. 
And then I just kind of forget about it. Yep. And then just like do nothing with that information. I'm like, well, that was not a waste, but yep. it's like it didn't impact anything I was doing because like I didn't do the work to take it out to apply it, which I think is when you read a lot, it's easy to get into as well, you know? Yeah, that's hard because that's the, the next step. Like it's easy just to consume what you're uh, reading and just be like, oh, that is cool. It's then like, you know, and I thought that was really wise when you told me that, Alan, a couple of months ago when I was visiting you guys was like, if I'm going to go to a conference, I need to take something here or read a book. I need to be able to use it on Monday. And I think that's the mindset you have to have. It's like at least one thing, take on it and use it, start applying it and figuring out how it works next week. Otherwise, yeah, it's like there's no difference between that and sitting and binge watching like, you know, a Netflix series because you're not going to apply it. Well, what's what's interesting about that, too, is, you know, I think especially on the strength and conditioning side of it, there's there's that old saying, you know, the you know, the, the worst strength coach out there is the one who says, I've always done it this way. We're always going to do it this way. Uh, this is my way. This is how we do it. Well, I'll mm-hmm. be honest with you, man. That, I think that's kind of going the way of the dinosaur. That guy just doesn't really exist anymore. Yeah. That's not how we learn anymore. Yes. But I think what has shifted is the pendulum has swung to the other side where now it's, hey, did you hear about this? This changes everything. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah. well, hold on now. Like I said, take one thing away. Don't don't change up your entire program because, well, do you see how that guy's writing squats? Like right. we need to do that. Like no, no, yeah. no, no, no. That's that's you know really getting a cart out in front of the horse here. Take take one thing that with that little piece of the puzzle within your five thousand piece puzzle, that piece of the puzzle makes the puzzle just a little bit better. So mm. yeah, it's don't don't waste your time. Take take one thing away from it. That's interesting. Yeah, that's what my wife was saying this morning. She was looking on her Twitter, and she's a physical therapist, and um, blood flow restriction training is like the new hot thing in PT, right? Mm. And before that, it was like um, doing isometric um, exercises, you know, rehab exercises. And she's like, like now everyone's all on blood flow restriction training and like applying it. Say, oh, this is the new thing that's going to make everything better and help patients you know um you know get healthy quicker and we're like whoa whoa, 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 pump the brakes it's it's interesting it's really exciting and it is potentially very um powerful but again we don't have a mu- as much long-term you know one and all experience from a mass audience nor research or evidence-based research to back any of this we have some people in japan who came up with this and you have demonstrated results, sure, but it's not necessarily something to say, oh, this is the catch-all, be-all that's going to help patients get back to, you know, uh, health quicker, you know, plus or minus, yes or no. Yeah, it's it's kind of like that hype cycle idea where, like, whenever something gets introduced, it's like, oh, man, everybody jumps on it. And then over time, it kind of settles down into its appropriate spot. And I think... As coaches, we can kind of get stuck in that, like, chasing the next thing kind of thing. And I think that's where, like, your point is, like, understand, like, your program, what you know, and with the foundation of it. And then you're looking at, like, taking one thing, tweaking this, tweaking this. But, like, what you, what you don't want to do is be that person who we all know who's, like, one week believes in this. And then the next month we talk to him and it, like, believes in this over here. And uh, mm-hmm. there's no foundation or continuity in the in the program. 
Well, and I, I think the important thing on that is, is if you say it's blood flow restriction, say it's isometric, if you've got a plan and your plan works, it usually consists of the basics, yes. right? The, the basics mm-hmm. that you stood the test of time, the meat and potatoes, and you, more importantly, you know how to implement, you know how to coach it, you know how to get results with your program. And I think what happens is everything is about trade-offs, right? So if you take yep. blood flow restriction and you're taking something out mm. that you know how to get results with, and now you're just kind of throwing spaghetti at the wall and hoping something sticks because you got a fear of missing <laughs> out on the latest and greatest, well, you actually might be taking a big step backwards because you have you have a great program that was being run great. Now you have a mediocre program that's hopefully still being run great, but it's now a mediocre program. Or you could have a great program a great modality with blood flow restriction, but it's being run poorly and the best program in the world run poorly is, is pretty worthless. So I, I, it's always about trade-off. It's always about what are you willing to sacrifice and and experiment, get better. But like I, I, the hopping on trends is, uh, is an interesting, interesting thing in our world right now. Well, it's human nature. And I think it's just easier now with social media, right? Because it's there every minute, every day. You can just wake up, open up whatever social app you want, and someone's doing something new and interesting that you never saw. And that, I think, is really healthy and valuable to like expand our um, awareness about what one could do to create a better situation, whether it's better athlete preparation or uh, skill acquisition or mental health, you name it. But my main thing is like, we just don't have the coping skills to process at the speed, all the information that's coming at us in this day and age. But we also know too, that habituation does make us better. It's like, uh, you know, the studies that they have where the IQ of a generation goes up three points every decade because the world becomes inherently more complex as civilization you know, evolves with technology. And so the kids you guys are coaching now, the complexity of the world is that's native to them, right? Versus say our parents or grandparents, the complexity of the world is very difficult because it wasn't like that. And I think that's the thing, right? Teachers who teach how they were taught, you know, they're already behind the eight ball and that's what we're talking about. If you coach how you were coached, um, you've already you've stunted the ability for yourself and also the athletes you have to grow. But you have to know, okay, what is the foundational core element that you're trying to um, get at? And then also, too, how do you offer something that's more enlightened? I think that's what we're all searching for. Like I was talking with my wife today and saying, look, you know, the, she's an athlete and she's had she's been in the injury cycle for a long time. Just, you know, random things here and there. Nothing like overuse It's just like twist an ankle here, got hit by a dog there, you know, just random <laughs> stuff like stupid. But I was like, at the end of the day, all training's about at the end of the day is making sure that you are durable, like because you have to go through a season like every athlete has a season whether it's a season of racing a season of games whatever and if you can't show up there's no point to any of the training so to me when that people say basics i go the basics is just durability and then it's like answering the question of how do we promote and enhance and help a person become durable as an athlete and yet you know commission bias right the the propensity to want to do something instead of you know actually not doing anything that feeds us in a way that says, 
we got to be in the gym and gym rats and working out every day for five hours because that's the, the, the trigger that's going to get us stronger. And, you know, I think Steve, myself and you, Alan, we all say, well, yeah, that uh, interjection of stimulus is important. But if it's not immediately complemented with rest, nutrition and uh, uh, the, the recovery time, so what? Yeah, so let's let's dive into that a little bit. Um, yeah, because I'd love to get you know Alan's thoughts because yeah. that's I think you know one thing that you are really good at and bringing to your audience and the audience of strength and conditioning and training culture in general is the complementary nature of what you guys are eating at the training table, right? And then also too the importance of uh, the other recovery modalities that are really basic like sleep that feed into the ability for, you know, the athlete population we work with to perform at an optimal level. And even too, like, you know, you shared with me when I was down there visiting with you a couple months ago, the frustrations you have for some athletes who have the talent but don't have the buy-in, who just think they can, you know, get away with being talented, but then soon that head start of talent is surpassed by the athlete who understands the training and adaptation cycle and takes it serious. Yeah, so from a standpoint of the nutrition side of it, um, I might be the most simplistic human being on planet Earth. Like, there, there's very few things that I'm, like, interested in, but I'm really, really interested in them. Um, you know, I got, like, one grocery store, one restaurant, like, <laughs> one bar. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm just a very Love simple it. guy, right? But uh, when it comes to the food side of it, I think that we've overcomplicated it. And I think that we look at it from a standpoint of, you know, let's let's take this concept, okay? One of the one of the things that we do with nutrition is we just we provide information and, and information is necessary. It's good to provide information, but all three of us know that fast food is bad for you. But if, you know, if, if you held any of us to the fire at some point over the last, whether it be week, month, whatever, we've all had fast food, life got in the way, you ran through the golden arches, but you know it's not good for you. So, or alcohol is not good for you, but you meet up with your buddies, haven't seen them in a while, you have a beer, right? Mm -hmm. So you know things that are not good for you, but you do it anyways. Mm -hmm. Now, if you'd have had a meal prepped and you got caught in traffic and you're this, you're that, the other, you could have ate your prep meal because that's an actionable thing that can get you through a problem, right? And so when it comes to nutrition, I think it's the same thing. Providing information is really important, but there's got to be actionable solutions. And so for us, you know, the guys that we recruit on our basketball team, we recruit Houston, we recruit Louisiana, we recruit North Carolina. Those are our three and really, I say Houston. It's it's Texas, but you know we got a lot of Houston fans. Yeah. But but Texas, Louisiana, uh, North Carolina, and then we get you know a player from here, or there, you know, just kind of some outlier spots. Well, from a standpoint of what we do on the nutrition side, when I came in, uh, let's, there just weren't as many vegetables being eaten. We can put it like that. And one of those conversations is, well, those guys don't like vegetables. Well, no, hold on now, they don't like maybe broccoli. Right. But they really like okra and they really like greens and they really like other kind of vegetables that they're more familiar with. So mm -hmm. from a simple standpoint, 
you know, the, the things that are important, you know, we start every meal with 40 grams of protein. We start every meal with vegetables. We want you to build your plate around that. We always have carbohydrates, but you know, complex carbohydrates, fruits, things like that. I'm, I'm not a huge advocate of just, they need calories, 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 give them desserts and cookies and this, that, the other, which, you know, having Gatorade at every meal, which there's a lot of people who go that route. Um, and a quick tangent on that. I mean, we're in Houston, Texas. We are the, <laughs> we're, we're the least calorically deficient city in America, right? So mm-hmm. if, if we're looking at it from a nutrition standpoint, let's give them something they'll actually do. So, you know, doing jerk chicken with an okra jambalaya and some wild rice, that's a really good meal that they would have just went and spent $17 to get the exact same meal somewhere down the road. But if we would have said, Hey, we're going to do spaghetti and meatballs with cauliflower and you know, whatever you want to throw out there with it, they're not going to eat that because it's just something that's not to their palate, you know, just with the players we recruit and we have. So one, we're giving them an actionable solution, which is really good food, taste and health are not mutually exclusive, but uh, you know, the other side of it is now we're, we're focusing on the quality of the food, you know, so again, we're not just doing processed and, and high, high calorie. I'm not obviously anti-calorie. I'm not anti-protein, fat or carb. I'm not really, uh, I mean, other than alcohol, which I'm, I'm fairly anti. I mean, I, there, there's no good justification for having it in your body if you're trying to perform at the highest level. Uh, not that we all haven't had our fun in our day, but, uh, you know, I'm not really anti-anything. But it's just got to be quality. Mm-hmm. And so if you're looking to improve body composition, if you're looking to per- improve performance, mm-hmm. you know, the easiest ways to do that are usually get more sleep because we're yep. pretty sleep deprived and then just clean up the quality of your nutrition. Because again, one, one trip through the, you know, the fast food, you know, go to Chick-fil-A and get two sandwiches, fries and a large sweet tea. I mean, you've got your calories for the day. So again, uh-huh. it's usually calories aren't the issue. It's just a matter of, you know, and then you can really start diving into it. Well, now it's about nutrient timing, you know, again, but the, the quality to me is, is where I think a lot of us miss the boat. Yeah. And, you know, so just, just some simple stuff we're doing. And, and I think our, our menus are a little bit unique. I don't, I don't know too many other schools doing it, maybe the way we do it, but, uh, you know, it, it really works for us, and we get a lot of compliance and adherence with with the guys that we have and the menus we put together to make sure that we're feeding them the right way. And how do you get how do you get that buy in from the players? Like, how have you found that? All right, here, here's the thing. I think when it comes to buy in, I think number one, there's got to be credibility. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of times as coaches. Actually, I won't say a lot of times. I've seen it happen before where a coach gets frustrated and they're like, man, I just, you know, I can't get the buy-in or, or I'm just not getting the results. And you don't want to say it, but it's like, bro, have you seen what you're doing? Like, I wouldn't mm. buy into that either. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. so I, I think there's got to be credibility. And then there's, you know, the, the care factor of how you do it. If it's not important to you, why would it be important to them? You know, you got to have a little bit of a fire under your seat in terms of sense of urgency, right? If it's not important to you, it will not be important to them. Um, you know, and, and then the other side of it is I think if you can make somebody understand that what you're doing gets them to their goal 
and this is your clearly defined path for success, you know, a really simple one is, is breakfast. You know, we got, we obviously got weight gain guys. Um, we, we feed them often, uh, but it, you know, we can't feed them every meal every day. And so being able to go to a guy and say, look, waking up in the morning, cracking four eggs into a pan and, you know, having an apple with it. That's not a million dollar meal, but that's a million dollar habit because you have the opportunity to make a lot of money in this game. Well, don't get to the end of your senior year, which is either this year, next year, whatever. And I mean, the the scouts are calling me, asking me questions. They're telling me you're 179 pounds. They they question your durability. I mean, I'm I'm not going to lie to you. That is the question mark on you. But you at 199 pounds, that is a question that goes away. And with amateur athletes, all you're doing is projecting. So if you can make sure that they don't have those concerns and you're performing, well, here's how we can get to that 199. And again, four eggs and an apple might cost you 75 cents. Right. I mean, it's a 50 cent meal, but it's a million dollar habit. And so I think you just got to make sure that you can connect the things that are important to them back to what you're trying to sell. But the other side of this now, don't ever lose sight of this. These guys can still run through Chick-fil-A. They can still have one too many drinks celebrating after a really, really big win. And they're freaks of nature. They're still going to bounce back the next day. That's just what makes them special compared to the rest of us is they're just built a little bit different. And so I'm not encouraging that. I'm not saying, but they know that too. So if you try to BS them and say, dude, if you have this beer on the weekend, you're only going to shoot 10% from the free throw line. Like, <laughs> hold on now. I've had a lot of beers this season and and then I'm first team all conference. So, I mean, like you got to be real. You have to give them good information. And, and I feel like student athletes are great at two things, sniffing out BS and getting out of things. Right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And so... You know, you, you try to BS somebody, well, you're, you're trying to BS a BSer, man. That, that usually don't go too far. Um, and just super side tangent, getting out of things. When I was working football, usually during football camp, uh, you know, August, heat of the summer, right before the season starts, everyone in the country does a fun day. You know, you take yeah. them, you can't, you just cancel practice, you, you go to the pool. You cancel practice, you take them to a movie. Every single year, they knew what we were doing before we did it because they would start <laughs> calling around town. Asking, hey, this is someone, you know, and, and they would say like, hey, this is so-and-so uh, from USU football. And they would drop a name of a coach or a somebody <laughs> and say, hey, I'm just trying to see, did, did we get a confirmation on that pool reservation? Oh, I have no idea. No, we don't have. Oh, you know what? No, no, no. We, we were talking about it. We didn't. Or so every year they knew if we were going to the movies, going to the pool. Going, so they knew what day we were doing our off days. I mean, these, these guys hilarious. are unbelievable awesome. at getting out of things, man. It's pretty, it's pretty crazy. That's, that's such a cool story. It's it is, but at the same time, it's like, man, you feel like they're pulling one over on you. It's kind of a well, you you kind of forget it, you know, when you're in this college stuff long enough, you kind of forget what it was like to be like that oh, yeah. eighteen to twenty two year old kid because it's like you're like, oh yeah, like I remember trying to like figure out things and get out of this and get out of that, and it's just you know. You forget about that stuff sometimes. Yeah, but but again, just just don't BS a BS. You know, be be real. You know, they're I call them kids all the time. You know, the reality is they're men. You know, yeah. like, I work with the men's basketball team. I, I you know, and and they're men. They're young men, 
you know, they're, they're developing, man. They're growing, but they're still men. So, I mean, you know, don't, yeah. the same way I wouldn't come in here and BS you two. I, I know you wouldn't, you know, you could, you could probably BS me. I'm, like I said, I'm a simple <laughs> guy, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, the same way I wouldn't do that to you. I mean, don't, don't do it to your athletes. There's got to be, you know, there's got to be a level of respect there because, I mean, you know, we, we feed our families and support our, you know, our families based off of what we do as a team. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's, you know, don't take your ego out of it and just, uh, you know, give them a process worth trusting, be bought into it, believe in it, and and make sure you're getting results. Mm. Yeah. Amen. Speaking of no BS, the men's uh, basketball team at UH is a really high-intensity, high-energy team. Like, I know Coach, uh, you know, over there, he wants the guys going, you know, full bore, fast, early and often the whole game. From a kind of conditioning and strength uh, training standpoint, Alan, like how, you know, it, maybe walk us through like in big sweeps, how you set up that um, in the off season and then complement the SNC work to what's going on the basketball floor during season. Just because again, it's, it's very rare to see a basketball team with the type of uh, intensity and energy that UH brings and at, is asked to bring for four or five months you know, on the court. So I, I think it's really interesting if you could walk us through that and say how do you how you're going about solving this problem to get those guys ready to play at the level that coach wants them to play at day in and day out. Yeah. So if if we're talking about how we line up a year, I think it's mm-hmm. important to zoom out just a little bit and understand that this last year we we had a really, really good year. I think we finished thirty four and four uh, you know, won the league, uh, you know, made a good little run there in the tournament, um, you know, had, had a really, really good season. Well, that, that season started in June, the first Monday in June, because with the NCAA, you know, guidelines, we can have them on campus. And it's such a great rule because you can get these student athletes on campus. You can get them in classes. You can get them knocking out their degrees. Um, but then the other side of it is you can have them in the building training. So we get eight hours mm-hmm. a week, uh, and and to give credit to our head coach who and understand this, the rule was you can have six hours in the weight room and two hours with the coaches. So you could have eight hours and it could be split six and two. You didn't need to take them all, but but you could only have two with the coaches. They then changed the rule where it could be four and four. So you could have four hours with the coaches and you could have four in the weight room. Our head coach called me in and said, hey, what do you think about that? And I said, look, coach, here's the deal. We don't need to be great at basketball for a while, but we we need to you know, make some hay now, and we need to develop these guys and saturate some athletic attributes that we're just not going to be able to do the rest of the year. And he said, yep, I, I agree. He's like, take take six, I'll take two. Uh, if you don't need all six, you, know, you take five, I'll take three. And what's interesting about that is – the majority of coaches around the country were going the other way. They're saying, no, 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 we mm. need six on the floor and they need two in the weight room. And the reason mm. I tell you that is because from a developmental standpoint, we started in June and we finished in March. So that means we got April and May where we're not training or in season or practicing. Right. right. So we got 10 mm-hmm. months. And so with our head coach, he understands that what he wants out of them, it is a developmental process. You, you don't need to be in March game shape on June 15th. So our June and July, we are in summer shape. And yeah. 
our summer shape, again, understanding we, we need to get these guys off time in April and May. So we implement a lot of, you know, tempo running, a lot of jump rope, a lot of things that are going to help build a good base for conditioning, but we're not trying to peak into any sort of shape yet. Now, the other side of that is, is I'm the firm believer that, you know, you only got one butt, don't try to ride two horses, right? So our June and July, we are doing a lot of strength development and we're doing a whole lot of packing on muscle mass because, you know, we do try to bully ball some people sometimes. Uh, we are a very, very physical team. Um, you know, and, and the strength and the size component is a big part of that. And, you know, and luckily with, like you said, the sleep, the, the food, the resources we have, we can, you know, we can have some good progress there. Uh, but really in the summer, uh, our June and July is an interesting setup, and I don't know too many other people doing it this way, uh, but we come in on Mondays, and we actually tempo run on Monday. And the reason we do that is because in a perfect world, these guys sat around all weekend, eating meals, hydrating, playing Xbox, staying off their feet. So in a perfect world, they've been sitting around for the last two days. Let's get them up. Let's ease them into the Monday because we got Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So we get a good 10, 15 minute warm up and, and just 70 to 75% tempo run up and down the field. Uh, and we build a base off of that. Okay. Now in a non-perfect world, maybe we need to get their liver function back a little bit on Monday. So <laughs> uh-huh. that liver is kind of important. Maybe, maybe we don't want to be absolutely throttling them into the ground on Monday morning if they're still trying to figure out how to get back from a Saturday or Sunday. Uh, because again, you're working with an 18 year old who maybe shouldn't have made those decisions, but it's the first time he did because he'd never been at a party before and never had access to some of that. Or maybe you're working with a 21-year-old who you've got every right in the world to, you know, go have some fun on the weekend, but it just doesn't help your athletic performance. So so we come in and we actually tempo run on Monday to kind of get the weekend out of our system, uh, and then we go do our training. Uh, our Friday is a lot of strongman, so loaded carries, mm. uh, things like that. And, and I've kind of got away from some of the other strongman stuff we were doing, you know, a lot of, a lot of tire work, sledgehammers. Uh, just kind of putting some metabolic circuits together. And we've got a lot more into the loaded carry aspect mm. of it. Um, you mm-hmm. know, some snatch grip carries, farmer carries, you know, things like that. And then Tuesday and Thursday uh, do a lot of jump rope. So that that's kind of how we, we break up our conditioning for the summer. And then for the five to six weeks heading into our season. So we start practice tomorrow. For the last five weeks, we've kind of had an emphasis on conditioning. So again, you've only got the one butt. Don't ride two horses. We, we're still saturating some of those other attributes. We're still strength training. We're still working on other things. But our number one priority is conditioning because we got to mm-hmm. get into practice shape. Anybody who tells you that they can get you into game shape through a strength and conditioning coach has either A, never played the game, B, they have no idea what they're talking about, or C, they're, they're trying to make money off you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so we just need to get them into practice shape. Once you're in practice shape, a lot of other things will take care of itself to get you ready for the game. Uh, just from running up and down the court, you're five on five, you're, you're running different scenarios, your different drills. That that's what gets you ready for the game of basketball. That is basketball specific conditioning is the game of basketball. Now, the yes. other thing with basketball is we've had the last you know five weeks of conditioning. It is not 
a lot of linear speed development. Basketball is accelerate and stop, accelerate mm-hmm. and stop. Uh, you know, so we have some conditioning tests that we value. Uh, we have goal times that we give guys, and that's that is a little bit unique because I think. I think people need to understand that when you chase numbers, you you can miss out on a lot because you sacrifice things to chase numbers. So if you're chasing goal times, you can sacrifice other things. But the other side of that is there is a true sense of accomplishment. If you tell a kid, hey, you have to run a sideline nine. So starting on one sideline, you got to go over, back, over, back, over, back nine times. And you've got to do that in less than 27 seconds. Mm. That's our standard. And kids, they might run a 28 and a half and say, man, like, I can't walk. I just ran three of these. My legs were fried. You know, it's kind of like the Wingate test, right? You do that 30 seconds, yeah. and you're like, all right, what just happened? <laughs> well, it's the same thing on this on this sideline nine test. You just ran your heart out, and you made it in 28 and a half seconds, and you got to shave a second and a half off over the block of our conditioning. But mm-hmm. then you run a 26-9, 26-9, 26-8 when we retest three reps on that. And there's such a sense of accomplishment that you own that. No one can ever take that away from you. Yeah. Right. I mean, you, you saw us out on yeah. the track and, and uh, you know, we, we still run the mile. We run the mile on Fridays. And it's interesting because that's a very polarizing topic in basketball. But my mm-hmm. head coach, the one who signs my check, has been doing that for 32 years. He's got files in his cabinet of every team and what their mile times are for the last 32 years. And so the way I look at it is, worst case scenario, it's a great warm-up. Because we get done a mile, and then we go lift anyways, right? So we uh-huh. spend you know, 10 minutes warming up, we go run a mile, and then we go lift. But the other side of it is, is if I were to tell you, hey, I got a 6'10 big man, he weighs 250 pounds, he's got a 38-inch vertical, and he runs a nine-minute mile. Or I got the exact same guy, and he runs a 550 mile. You're obviously going to take the guy who runs a 550 mile, even yeah. though that mile doesn't correlate to anything in basketball. If if you want to make that argument, right. well, our slowest big man is exactly that, and he ran a 550 mile when we retested our mile. So that's the slowest guy on our team is a 550 mile. Our fastest guy is a five minute mile. So I mean, it's you know we we don't have any four minute you know guys out there or anything. But <laughs> yeah, send them over to Steve real quick if you want that. <laughs> yeah, so. So again, so I mean, they're chasing numbers. I do think has some value, uh, but again, we're just we're really trying to get them into practice shape. How can you get you know? There, there's kind of the two thoughts on practice. Do you go, you know, seventy five to ninety minutes of of super hard and intense, or do you do the three hour teaching practices? And well, we do three hours of of hard and intense. <laughs> you know, so but the other thing is we have a lot of depth. And that's the thing, you know, we, we, we kind of tend to, and, and three hours, a little bit of exaggeration, but, you know, we lend ourselves to, uh, you know, a little bit of the, a lot of teaching, um, a little bit of the grinders days, uh, and we have a lot of depth, but you gotta, you gotta be able to withstand that. And that's a lot of volume covered during that practice. So we get in, uh, get in practice shape. Um, so at this time of the year, when, when we just finish up conditioning and we're transitioning to practice, we have essentially until March as an uninhibited training block. So I think we can get a lot out of, of what we do in the weight room. I think we can make improvements. I think you got to be really smart about it because you can't do anything in the weight room that takes away from what you're doing on the court. You got to, mm-hmm. you got to complement what you're doing. But at the same time, you can do that because we don't have elite level lifters. We have beginners. We have guys with a year or two under their belt. 
but we don't have guys with five years of training experience. You can continue to make progress with these guys throughout the season. So until our first game hits, everybody on the team will be lifting at least three times a week. Um, you know, we do a, a little bit more of a Tabata style build up with our conditioning now. So, you know, doing some Versa climbers, doing some airdyne bikes, just some very, very low impact conditioning as a compliment in the weight room. Uh, and we'll build that up a little bit and, and work that based off of minutes played in the game. But our, our high minute guys, you know, tend to lift about twice a week, not much extra conditioning. Our, our low minute guys, which are 10 minutes or less, uh, we'll do, you know, two conditioning sessions at the end of the lifting session a week and mm. then we'll get a third lift in. Uh, but that conditioning session, again, doesn't ever take more than eight to 10 minutes. It's Tabata style. It's just, uh, making sure that we're, we're not losing what we built up. And then our red shirts, uh, no minute guys, they, they go with me four days a week in season. So we, we get after, we probably go a little bit more than the average team. Um, but mm -hmm. I think we have a very intelligent approach and I think we provide them the necessary tools to recover from what we're asking them to do. Mm. And so I really like how you frame that, Alan. You got summer shape, practice shape, and then game shape. Yeah. You know, it's a and I think sometimes like in our world of distance running, there is this illusion that one can be in, you know, a high level of fitness year round. Especially like, you know, not to get too deep in the weeds here um you know recently a very famous coach was banned for four years for providing you know illegal substances and trafficking to his athletes for a long time and you know what that does is like i tell everyone more than anything what it does is it um accelerates developmental timelines so you know development takes time this is what a friend and mentor jerry schumacher who's a another famous uh distance coach uh, you know, remind me all the time when I was under his wing, um, learning from him, you know, 10 years ago was it just takes time. And that's how the body and how humans biology and physiology works is long, consistent, uninterrupted blocks of training and years. Sometimes what it has is with pharmaceutical aids, right, is it just accelerates those timelines. So something that could take three months, I mean, three years takes three months. And that fools us. And it's important, I think, to understand, like, even as any coach, there is a off-season shape. There is a, you know, getting into season shape, early season shape. And then there is, you know, a peak championship or however you want to call it, uh, game shape. And we can't ask athletes to, you know, blend all three or be in, like, peak or championship or game shape year-round because it's just unrealistic. And unfortunately now in this day and age, sometimes, especially in the distance running or track and field world, we can't really tell who's pharmaceutically, you know, enhanced and who's not because there's all these training programs and philosophies being shared. But, you know, it's not to criticize anyone, but just to say, look, there are just realistic, irrefutable biological timelines where development does take time and certain qualities can't just be ex uh, accelerated you know, like something like strength or something like speed or aerobic development. Those take years and years and years. And it's refreshing to hear, you know, you talk about your redshirt guys, because in our world in distance running, we've kind of lost, especially the transition from the high school kid to the college kid, that redshirt year. And it used to be standard practice where, you know, Bill Bowerman at University of Oregon would sit out all his freshmen for a year and 
give them the time to develop to be able to compete well over 10K cross country when they were in 5K in high school. Give them the time to develop. And this is something that, you know, some of the best coaches, you know, do still to this day, like Steve or um, our friend Mike Smith at NEU. I mean, he redshirted for a year in cross country, the best uh, college runner, uh, Brody Hastings, uh, you know, or hasty bait for a whole year to get him up to speed. And uh, he was the best high school runner coming out. And he said, nope, we don't need you. We don't want you because it's going to take a lot to get up to this level, like to run, you know, for half an hour at your highest versus 15 minutes. Rob Connor does this as well at UP, you know, more often not freshman automatically registered just because he understands development takes time. And we need to keep uh, reminding ourselves that it does you know, at UP and even like Stephen Test says at UH, it can take four or five years to get a, a, you know, a talented high school athlete to become a competent collegiate athlete. But we often forget that in our culture of, you know, now instant gratification more so than ever. Yeah, I'll, uh, with, without backtracking too much in what you just talked about, because that's a, such a phenomenal point, and I think the best coaches understand the development side and investing in people, because you're investing in your athletes, you're investing in their future, you're investing in their career. So when you develop, you're investing. Uh, I'll circle back, and again, without diving too much into it, you know, talking about the uh, the band that just happened, it's interesting because on the strength and conditioning side of it, there's there's been a lot of old research that might have come out of the old, you know, Eastern Bloc countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's yeah. been, you know, some of the godfathers of strength here in the U.S. that are brilliant, brilliant coaches, and they're really smart guys. But their athletes were were using gear. I mean, they they were just sauced yeah. out of their minds. And one of the things that's really <laughs> interesting about that is with the and by no stretch of the imagination am I an expert on HRV. But when you're looking at all the stuff coming out with, you know, heart rate variability, um, one of the things that's, that's, I guess, started to kind of creep up or not creep up, it's, you know, but one thing that started to manifest itself is that when you have guys who are on hormone replacement therapy, so just when you're on a therapeutic dose of testosterone, as mm-hmm. soon as something happens, you're right back into a parasympathetic state. Mm-hmm. So as soon as you yep. finish, you're, you're starting to recover again. So if you're on Instantly, the, yes. I mean, immediately, and yeah. that's part of the reason uh-huh. with the, when you're using, when you're using hormones, it's not necessarily that you're putting something into your body that turns you into the incredible Hulk or Popeye and, and it's in there. So now you're like, oh man, like I'm, I'm going to set a new PR today. Cause I, I started a new drug yesterday. No, I mean, it's still going to be a process, but the recovery happens quicker mm-hmm. and because the recovery yeah. happens. Now you're ready to train at a higher level. So you're training harder, more often, and your result, mm-hmm. and you're more consistent with your blood work, which is you know when yeah. you start talking about cortisol, testosterone, things like that, because you're putting it in there, so you're controlling it. But mm-hmm. one of the things you see in strength and conditioning is you have coaches who will run training programs that were written for guys who are not on therapeutic doses; they're right. on insane, you know the same amount you'd be given a 2000 pound bowl, right? And you're <laughs> yeah. putting that inside a, a human being. Of course he got stronger. He had a really good pharmacist, right? Yeah. And so, so not to say that the programs don't work, the programs work great, but you can't make that mistake of saying, well, Hey, this track coach 
had his guys running these splits this often. Well, wait a minute. His guys also had a really, really good pharmacist. Right. And that's something right. you don't have. And so the same thing, somebody could look at what we're doing at UH and say, man, those, those red shirts are training four days a week. Those low minute guys are training three days a week and they're conditioning and they're, the, well, the other thing is we can feed our guys. We can provide right. a lot of nutritional right. support. We set our schedules up so we don't have to wake them up early because we're not, you know, we have a basketball weight room. We're not competing for space. So the best thing in season is you want to come in at nine or 10 or 11. Well, we work with guys a little bit more of a one-on-one, mm. you know, one-on-two type deal in smaller groups. So with that, we can, we can train them different. So you're getting mm-hmm. sleep, you're hydrating, you, you have 24 seven access to food, you have meals. Okay. If you don't have that and you may, you might have a little bit of a lower level athlete, don't try to mimic what other people are doing because it won't work in your situation. Um, and again, I, I was at Southern Utah University, which was a really, really small school, actually same conference now as NAU. Uh, but it's, it's night and day. I mean, I, this is no disrespect to them. They have a, you know, they have a very good football team, very good basketball team. They have high level athletes that work hard. But if we played them a hundred times, we'd be favored a hundred out of a hundred, whether we played here, there in Tokyo, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. we, we just have a different level of athlete. We have a different level of support. We have a different level of everything. So not to say they shouldn't squat and we should, but maybe they're setting rep protocols. Maybe they're conditioning. Maybe they're, you know, maybe they don't have the kind of guys that can run 26.9 sideline nines. Maybe them running a 29 mm-hmm. with a little of a lower level athlete, but maybe a more skilled athlete. That's mm-hmm. perfectly fine too. Cause again, you're, you're making the individual better. I love that point on like, don't trying to mimic because I think, in all of our worlds, like that is the tendency because we tend to look at, you know, what these people did at this program that was successful or these people who made the Olympics or these people who, you know, are uh, legends in the strength and conditioning world. And it's not to say don't look at them, but understand, as you said, the circumstances around that, whether that's, you know, PEDs or whether that's, you know, they're living full-time athletes who have personal chefs or whatever so that they have this ability that, that you don't have. And, you know, um, as a coach and then also as an athlete, like you have to understand that context so that you're not just doing this plug and play, which, you know, happens a lot, a lot for young coaches as well. It's easy. Yeah. Just to see a recipe or a training protocol and just copy and paste. And, you know, I think Americans, especially, and anyone, you know, maybe in a Western dominant uh, mindset, we have a, a desire to just outwork a problem, right? So the more work equals more better. And, you know, two things, right? PEDs accelerate someone's fitness um, acquisition, but also, too, fitness acquisition over the long term, unin- uninterrupted and sustained, does get you to the same end result you know, albeit a lot more arduous and more at a snail's pace than PEDs do because as someone becomes more fit, part of fitness is their ability to tolerate, withstand, interpret, and also recover from the loads. And so, you know, we I always talk about the three biggest training variables, right? Density, 
um, intensity and volume. And we're always kind of in a dance and balance with that. Now, if someone just all of a sudden just goes plug in this place and just we're going to ratchet them all up, we're going to do a lot more work at a higher level of intensity with a lot less rest in between, that can have serious consequences for an athlete who's not ready, as we all know. But that, I think, is it's tough because we have to temper this and understand that it is, um, you know, it's kind of like a hockey stick curve on a on a graph right it's exponential these gains and at first it's slow go compounding interest sucks it's like one penny at a time the bank account doesn't go up but after like 10 15 years or 10 15 months in our case of training you should start to see huge jumps right and then you start to say oh this is great but i think that's where the coach has to know what athlete population working with where they're at in their training um uh, history, um, where they've been, and also to temper expectations. For Steve and I working with post-collegiate athletes, some of the hardest things we have is these athletes were had periods when they were really good, when they were like national class or world class, and then they went through some type of layoff or injury cycle. And you see this impatience and saying, well, I just want to get back to that level of where I was before as quick as possible. And, you know, I, I've dealt with this many a times, and I have to remind them development takes time. And so they might want to be back after a three, four-month injury layoff um, to where they were before the layoff in three, four weeks. And go, no, it might take nine to 12 months. And people have a hard time accepting that, and we get impatient, and we want to accelerate. Because, again, these are competitive people. And anytime you're in a zero-sum game where there's clear winners and clear losers, we want to you know, be on the winning side of the equation, but it's reminding ourselves that all these adaptations we talk about, it's not a, can I work my way out of this, the problem? It's does my environment afford me the ability to adapt to the stressors? And that's, I think what people don't understand is you guys at UH have tempered it in the men's basketball program. So guys have windows of full sleep cycles. Guys have, you know, the, ease and excess of being one taught what superior nutrition habits look like and what those foods look like and then also what those foods don't look like to help them make better choices on their own and then two they have a cohort of people around them encouraging them saying this is the way we got to do it we got to work our butts off yes but then you got to recover with the same level of focus and intensity and commitment that you that you brought to your training, and that's where having worked at a mid-major school like at Portland State, you know, and then also coaching, you know, high-level post-collegiate athletes. That's the biggest difference I see is how they treat the blocks of time, or how they've been taught to treat the blocks of time away from practice, away from the work. And the athletes who tend to do better, in my experience, are the ones who have more respect for the recovery period and what to do in those periods versus the ones who might not have been taught that or in an environment where, you, you know, out of sight, out of mind, I'm just going to stay up till 4 a.m. playing this game or, you know, going out to the bar or eating junky food, and then I have to show up for a long run the next morning at 8 a.m., and, you know, they can barely get through the activity because of the 24 hours that precede it. You know, I always talk about every athlete is basically a 72-hour athlete, right, in terms of, Today is influenced by what you did yesterday or didn't do. And then also then today, forward thinking, impacts 
tomorrow. What you're going to do and not do today is going to impact your tomorrow. So we're always kind of in the present, but held um, accounted, uh, held with accountability to what happened yesterday and then also to what we want to have happen tomorrow. And I think, Alan, like this seems to be one thing you're really good at is being another voice in a chorus at UH with those guys, teaching them these habits and teaching them this perspective that, you know, they didn't get in high school because it was McDonald's, Popeye's, you know, that was normalcy to them. And maybe talk about a little bit how you onboard that type of person into this environment and culture who might be coming from a place where, you know, they're just raw and talented and good and esteemed and loved and everyone just says, oh, you're the best. But yet the, the environment that they came from was not elite, yet they expressed elite talent and then transitioning them into a more elite environment to elevate their talent and elevate their natural capacity to, you know, a much higher level. Yeah. So that one, that one's interesting because yeah. from a standpoint of what I can do, it's really important to remember, I am a support staff member. And when it comes down to it, at the end of the day, I'm not the one deciding minutes on the court. That's always mm -hmm. the head coach's job. Now, the other side of that is we've got a head coach who has established a program with a culture and an expectation. And there's a huge difference between having a program and having a team. You can have a good team every once in a while, part of a bad program. But when you have a good program, you're always going to have good teams and you're going to bounce back quick. So with that being said, when these guys come in, we've got the, the culture established. So if somebody thinks they're going to come in and, and look at me and, and have an opinion, I mean, I, I can look them in the eye and say, bro, are you asking me or are you telling me? Cause you're, like, you're acting like you think you have a say on the matter, right? <laughs> and, and it's not, it's not personal. It's not a, it's not a deal where, you know, I'm, I'm challenging his manhood or, or he's doing vice versa. I mean, it's usually someone who might not have information or they just have an opinion and, and they're trying to have that opinion heard. But we have a great program with a great culture. So guys come in and they usually fall in line because when you have a developmental program, our juniors and seniors are absolutely throttling these freshmen, these 17-year-old kids who don't forget two months ago, they had to raise their hand and ask permission to go to the bathroom, <laughs> right? I mean, they're, they're on a different level. And we've got, you know, grown dudes who are 21 and 22 years old who've got three and four years of eating right and training hard and being part of something that works. I mean, we have freshmen that can come in and contribute and help us, but they're not coming in and they're not going to be the – you know, the, the bell cow, or, you know, or the, the bell of the ball, because mm -hmm. there's other guys who've already put in the work that are ahead of them, right? Now, in a perfect world, we out-recruit ourselves every single year, and we'd have five one-and-done top five picks, but, I mean, the, the world ain't perfect, right? <laughs> so, so with us, you know, from that standpoint, I wish I could have a great, hey, if you do this, if you do X, then Y will happen. What I'll tell you is I, I made a conscious decision as a support staff member to come work for a head coach who would absolutely embrace and empower me to do what I wanted to do because we respected 
the same values. Mm. So, you know, and I know not everybody's in that. I've had to pay my dues and I've had to, you know, work for coaches that maybe were not at that level. And there's a mm. lot of head coaches who get one shot at it and, and never get another shot for a reason. They might have been great assistants. They might have been in a bad situation. They might have, but you know, they, they just didn't pan out as a head coach. So I think that's important to remember if you're someone in my shoes, you know, if you're a support staff member, if you're a strength and conditioning coach, you know, when you have the luxury to pick your head coach, like pick your head coach the right way that you're going to work for. Cause again, there, there's a lot of really, really good strength coaches who, who are 10 times better than I'll ever be but they might not have the same adherence or the same compliance because they got a head coach who just doesn't place the same value in what they do as my head coach places in the value of what, what I do. So, so long story short, if someone doesn't fall in line, I, I mean, I give them a the heads up like, look, man, just, this is what's going to happen. Let, let's not let that happen. And if they, if they want to be, you know, again, we don't have this problem here, but if they wanted to be a punk about it, you just, you walk upstairs, you again, let the assistant coach know first. Remember, some assistant coach got up on the table and said, this kid is the answer. Right. Do not go to the head coach and throw your assistant coach under the bus because the kid that he just went to bat for doesn't want to lift. Like, yeah. know, or he wants to skip training table because he just likes Chick-fil-A. Okay. Go to your assistant coach. Let the assistant coach get it handled. If that don't solve the problem, then bring it up to the head coach. But I mean, again, just I, I think the best decision, you know, outside of, of, you know, picking the most supportive wife in the world is going to support what I want to do with my career. I mean, again, I can't speak highly enough of of her in, in, in the field of coaching and, and being supportive in that. The, the best coaching decision I might have made from a professional development standpoint is, is getting with the right head coach yeah. to help my career blossom from a standpoint of we can do what we want to do because there's such a level of accountability that it's going to get done the way we want it done yeah i mean i think that goes for just about anything it's like beyond the world of sport it's like choose the people who like surround you well and then like especially like choose the people who are your bosses and have some sort of control over you even more, you know, important. I've, I've been fortunate to work over uh, or under people who have done that really well and people who have uh, done that poorly. And it makes Yeah, such... you've been like both sides of the uh, spectrum there, Steve. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Uh, but it makes such a difference in terms of like a buy-in from athletes, how you're treating athletes, um, and the things that you get to do as a coach. Yeah. You know, and in some cases you're allowed to actually coach and you know do what you want and like have the support behind you and i think from an organization standpoint like if any of us or anybody out there listening gets to that level is keeping that in mind and what you're trying to develop and are you trying to develop a place where you know people have that sort of autonomy to like go after what interests and drives them like it seems like you know you have here and i have here is and the the reason that we have that is because our bosses are supportive and like buy in and have that same vision that allows us to keep pushing forward. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I talk about it. The difference between being a boss coach and a leader coach, right? And yeah. leader coaches lead boss coaches, drive people to comply. And it seems like that's the situation you guys have both fallen to, you know, thankfully, luckily, and also, you know, 
um, maybe strategically at UH. Yeah, and you know, I'll say this because I think I think all of us as coaches thrive in a different environment. Mm-hmm. So, and one of the things that's really important to remember is is a lot of time your fit as a coach. It's almost like wearing a pair of pants, right? So if you're a size 32 and I'm a size 38 and you have a $10,000 pair of Gucci pants, like I don't know what they run, but, but, but that, that pair of pants, it don't fit me. Yeah. So it doesn't mean it's a bad pair of pants. It's, it's one of the biggest designers in the world. It's high end. It's a great, great pant. It's just not the right fit for me. Mm. Right. And so I think it's really important to, you know, and so for a guy like me, I operate really, really well with autonomy and when I can have a chip on my shoulder, like it's, it's, it's just, it's just how my brain is wired. I need to have maybe a battle that I'm fighting. I always have to have a struggle I'm overcoming and it's not necessarily like a, a man to man, but something that's kind of funny is like when I got here, the chip on my shoulder was, is, is I'm coming to work basketball in Texas. And, and I'm a former football player. I mean, I, I played football in the state of Texas. I mean, it is a religion down here. We all, we all know football is its own animal. So the chip mm-hmm. I put on my shoulder was, I want us to do such a good job with what we're doing on the basketball side that people say, man, they're doing it better than football is. And that's not because I want football to do bad. I want football to be the best in the world so that I have to be that much better. But that was a chip on my shoulder was how can I come into a situation where I got to just surpass everybody because we, we know who's driving the bus. Mm-hmm. And again, for some people, that might be absurd. And they're like, oh, don't compare yourself to somebody else. Don't do this. But that's just how my brain operates. I, I need to have a, a constant battle to win. And again, so yeah. when you're picking your, your situation you're working in, again, I need autonomy and I need to be able to have a chip on my shoulder. Yeah. And so I, I, like I said, I got a boss who I think loves the fact that he doesn't have to, he can just cut me loose and he knows I'm going to get the job done. And I think he likes the fact that, that his strength coach is a giant meathead that is going <laughs> to hold his dudes accountable. And I, 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 you know, it just kind of, it is what it is. So. Yeah. yeah I mean, I think that like, self-awareness to know what drives you and motivates you is one of the most important things that you can you can kind of figure out and understand because it's the same it's like you need to know what allows you to get up every day and excited to do that work and like some situations are going to fit well as you said and some are going to like hamper that and some are going to be with really nice good people but it just doesn't click with you or doesn't push those buttons so it's not going to be a good fit so doing that like self-awareness to understand what you need is incredibly valuable yeah it's knowing where you operate well and also in what situations you might not operate well like i know you know I've had several interviews for a variety of different coaching positions where they were very attractive and lucrative. And it was like, oh, my gosh, this would be an exciting place. Most people would say, go there because you're going to make good money or you have a lot of resources. But then at the end of the day, I just knew for me that space wasn't where I was going to be optimal. And if I wasn't going to be optimal, then my interactions and my coaching and my practice wasn't going to be optimal. And you see this time and time again, like – you know, Rob Connor at UP has had different opportunities to leave UP. He's been there for 30 straight years. You know, every year Mike Smith gets several calls 
to go somewhere that might be a little bit bigger of a school, get out of NAU in a mid-major setting. But it's not that they're happy where they are. They just understand where they are is where they're is where optimal for them right now. And that's where you have to do the hard work as a person and as a professional, I think. We talk a lot about tactics and training and philosophies and this and how to do this stuff, but also know where you're going to thrive and also where you're not going to not thrive and be at peace with that, right? And that's, you know, I think sometimes we, we forget that. And Steve, you know, you posted a tweet about an article Brad had put out, um, you know, about who you surround yourself with matters. The environment matters. And, you know, Alan's doing great in a place where he has the autonomy and trust versus he might not do well in another situation where everything was second guessed. But it's like the competitor's mindset um, is something that I see in what you described, Alan. It's like that winning mindset of like, all right, we just have to make it a game and a game that keeps keeps us motivated and excited and you personally every day to get out of bed and bring your best because that's what competitors do is they figure out ways to make it so that every morning you wake up excited to bring your best versus you wake up defeated versus that bringing your best doesn't matter and doesn't count because it does. It, it might not count if you're in a situation that doesn't foster that environment as a coach. It might not count to everyone around you, but it has to count to you. Because that's how you then get an opportunity to get to that space after, quote unquote, paying your dues to be able to bring what, you know, you guys are able to bring to the table day in and day out. I think, um, I think it's important what you were just saying is it's really important to remember that it's a lot easier to get to a point where you have success than it is to get to a point where you maintain success. Yes. And so if you want to maintain success, I really think you need to have a self-awareness of what drives you. And for me, I mean, it, it again, I'm, I, if, if you're listening, you've never seen me. I am a very large, intimidating looking human being. Some might say, but I have no shame in saying my, my guys, I love my guys. I mean, I, I will go to battle for my guys and, and it drives me. Because I got two kids that I know of at the house. Just, just kidding. <laughs> but I got, I got two kids at the house. But I got I got 13 more in my building. Right. And that, mm-hmm. that's how I view mm-hmm. these guys is, I mean, anything they need from me, I mean, I'm like, I got their back and I got them on it. And that drives me to teach and to be the best in the world at what we do. And, and we want to be successful at what we do. But again, once you've had that success, what is going to drive you? to not get satisfied. Yeah. And so I think that again, for me, I just, I need to have a chip on my shoulder and I need to be able to, again, like, I don't wake up every day now saying, how do I beat out football? Like I'm not trying to put out their fire. So I mine will shine brighter. I just want to have the biggest bonfire. Cause I'm just continuing to feed it and grow and, and, and this and that, but you've got to have something that drives you. What's another battle you can win, whether it's how do we add to a training table? How do we add to a mm-hmm. fueling station? How do we, you know, how do we get one extra running session? How can we add to what we've done in the past? But, but again, how do you handle success so you can maintain success? Cause it's so easy to just fall trap to that, like getting complacent. Yeah. Like once you've kind of checked off the big goal, especially when it takes time to get to that point yeah. where you've gotten, you know, you put in the hard work, done the years of work to get to this point, achieve some goal or get really close. It's really easy to kind of just rest on your laurels and just get complacent. And I think that, (laughs) 
you know, we see that in different areas and different sports. So like figuring out how to keep that energy going and not just settling into this kind of norm of, you know, blahness that sometimes we mm. get, I think is, you know, it's something that we've all got to figure out. There's a high school coach here in Portland uh, at Central Catholic, Dave Frank, and his thing is tradition never graduates. And I think that's really wise to say, but it's tough because I asked Mike Smith this the other day when we were talking on the phone. It's how do you maintain the continuity of tradition and the standard of account it holds the current generation to or the current team to in this season, but understanding that what happened last season or two seasons before or three seasons before or whatever has very little or zero impact on the outcomes that this season is going to, that's going to happen this season, that actors or agents, these athletes still have to show up and put, get buckets, as they say, right? Still have to show up and run the race. And just because your team won a title last year or won three in a row the last three years has zero guarantee or impact that it's going to be repeated again this year. And so it's a tough balance, right? Maintaining um, the understanding about what level of excellence is asked for in a program that has a tradition versus also every day and every season and every game being its own isolated uh, end of one, so to speak, that is not necessarily influenced in any way, shape, or form by everything that came before it. I mean, how I'm curious to see how you guys uh, wrestle or interact with that interplay, because I think that's it's tough to do as a coach, as we we're talking about, but it's very important to understand that relationship. I'll tell you what you just said. What we did last year has no bearing on what we're going to do this year. And I'll, t- I'll mm-hmm. tell you the, the, the phrase that I, it's bittersweet because it means you accomplish something, but it's the phrase I might hate more than any other phrase is defending champions because <laughs> what's, what are they going to do? They're going to come take the banner down. <laughs> right. That no, this year's team is this year's team. Yeah. Last mm-hmm. year's team was last year's team. If you defend the castle and the castle gets overtaken, like you lose the castle. They are not coming to take down your banner. What you did last year will never be taken away from that team and that group of individuals and what you had to do from June until March and all the obstacles you had to overcome and all the work you put into it, the blood, the sweat, the tears, the early mornings, the late nights, the travel down by 10 points in three different games going into half. You cannot take that away. This year's team is this year's team. So how do you start with the needs analysis on this year's day one, which it'll start out further ahead because you have players a little further developed and they're going to have different needs. But how do you get this year's team ready to go be the best version possible of this year's team? And so Mm -hmm. from the standpoint of, of like you said, you got to have your standard and you never deviate from the standard. Effort is non-negotiable. You you want to you want to lose a job real real quick as a head coach? Negotiate effort. <laughs> Let that be on the table. Like in, in any capacity. You've got to have your standard. Effort is not negotiable. You're going to work hard. You're going to buy into what you do. 
right? But again, you've got to have a clearly defined path to success for this year's team. And every player on the team needs to know their individual path to success within a team setting. So that, like you said, I, you got to, anyway, I can get set off on little things really easy, but, but you said every year is different. This year does not have anything to do with last year other than maybe recruiting, you know, having a good year, you might get a little bit better recruits in. I mean, that, that's definitely a part of it, Mm -hmm. but, but they're not taking the batter down. You're not defending anything. This is a new year, a new team, a new goal. Well, uh, Alan, as like a support staff member, a part of a, a you know a, a bigger program, what I'm curious is like how do you model or how do you personally go about um, setting a standard of not only just uh, role delivery excellence but also role clarity? Because I think it's easy and a little easier in basketball, but we still feel you know even in track and field and in cross country. We have to have clearly defined roles about what's expected of us as a person every day and how that fits into the bigger team or bigger picture, but also then too how we define that clear or that excellence of that role delivery and then go about on day to day delivering excellence in our role. Because we all have roles to play, but I what I've found is in programs and situations where that's not explicitly um, expressed and defined, people tend to get distracted or lost or saying, oh, so-and-so will pick up the slack. So-and-so will get the job done. I can just coast in on my laurels. I don't have to lift five more pounds or do an extra rep. But it, I mean, that's always my thing is how in a program that person at the top of the food chain or the leader of the, the bus also impacts and models role clarity and role excellence delivery for the newbie or the, you know, the person kind of at the bottom of the totem pole. So how, you know, um, have you gone about figuring out how to do that and do that on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, that's an interesting one because from a, from a role standpoint, the, the role on the team is, is above my pay grade, right? Whether it's five minutes, 25 minutes, you know, off the, that's, that's the guy signing my checks is the one making those decisions, right? Right. But how yeah. I impact that is from day one, I mean, we'll double blow the whistle, start it over. Your toe is on the line. Mm. Right? So you're going to come in and you're going to fall in line with the standard. And I think it's really important to remember that if on day one, the first time an athlete ever sees you, hey, we're starting at 7 a.m. And it's 7.02 and you're just kind of cool breeze and rolling into it. Well, 7 a.m. doesn't really matter. Mm. And if it matters the next day, well, now you're inconsistent. Mm -hmm. So you're not clearly defining anything. So even though I'm not clearly defining their role, I'm still clearly defining their role within my world. And within my world, here's a great stat for you. And so I'm going to knock on wood because we've, this is my third off season here at UH. The last two off seasons, so this this one and last year's, we start our lifts at 7 a.m. when we do our team training. So we team train four months out of the year, and then we kind of split up and do more of an individualized approach for eight months out of the year. Okay, when we do our summer team training, we start at 7 a.m. The latest, my because I I start every session with a double double tap on the whistle, bring it up, right? Mm-hmm. The latest we started in the last two years was 6:45 a.m. 
So think about that. That's that's not me Everyone's, going to their yeah. house. That's not yeah. me going. That is them being for a seven a.m. lift at six forty-five. I think our first day this summer we started at like six thirty-eight for a seven a.m. lift, which wow. means everybody's yeah. laced up in their gear in yep. the weight room, weighed in. Yeah. All right, we're ready to start. So clearly defining your role is your role with me is you're going to be on time, or if 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 you're not. It doesn't make you a bad person. It's stupid not to be on time, but we can be the kings of doing stupid things. I mean, we can bang out 25 push-ups. We can, you know, do something. But your role with me is to be on time. And then once we get going, we're going to be perfect at attention to detail. So if we're running, you know, and again, we do a lot of change of direction, touching lines, going back and forth. The whole team is looking at that wall on every cut. The whole team's looking at that line on every cut. Every whistle, your toe is behind the line. You do an extra rep over this line and you jog through the next line. So now there's an accountability standpoint. And again, it doesn't matter if it's a senior or a freshman. Because if you also want to get fired real quick, be afraid to call out your best player. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you want to call out a freshman? Cool. You want to send a message? Call out a senior. Call out an all-conference mm-hmm. player who's not toeing the line. And again, it's not personal. It doesn't make him a bad person because he, he came up one rep short and then jogged out. He just didn't hit the standard. Hey, not a big deal. Just jog it back. Let's do it again. So within clearly defining the role, it's just within my world. So we're going to be on time. We're going to do everything with attention to detail. Effort is never going to be negotiable. But then the other side of it is I think you got to find what makes a guy not necessarily tick, but what motivates him. Because I can't make you do anything. I want to inspire you to want to be great at it. So kind of like like we said with just waking up in the morning and cracking four eggs. Right. Just be inspired to have a million-dollar habit, right? And I think it's actually, you know, you want a guy to perform a little bit better. Find one guy that's motivated by pride. And a second guy that's motivated by shame and put them on the same rack. Because a guy that's motivated by pride will do everything humanly possible to be the best one on that rack. The guy who's motivated by shame is the one whose motivation comes from, like, I, I won't get beat. Like, no, I'm not going to let anybody beat me because I don't want the mm-hmm. embarrassment of getting beat. So now you have two guys who are just going to absolutely outcompete each other. And it's mm-hmm. funny because Neither one of those personality types is right or wrong. We're all wired a little bit different. And, you know, Mike Tyson is my favorite boxer of all time. Well, Mike Tyson has that great speech where he said he was just, he was terrified. He was petrified during training. What if, you know, what if he got beat? And then he just turned into a god on his walk down to the mm-hmm. to the ring because he knew nobody was going to be able to touch him with what he put himself through. Mm. So you could argue he might have been a guy that was motivated by shame his entire training session or his his training leading up to the fight. And you got a guy like Muhammad Ali, who's probably the opposite end of that spectrum, who was so motivated by pride that he was not going to let anybody in the world be better because he was going to be the best. No matter what, he was just going to be the best in the world. Mm. So again, you know, I think you can, you can get guys motivated. You can get guys inspired, um, but just have a standard and never deviate. Yeah. I love that. I mean, just being, just from listening, it seems like you're so clear on like what your standards are and what your values are and then like just living by them. And I think that that point of setting your standard, but also like 
enforcing it and not getting away from it because I think so many times what can happen is we can sit there and be like, oh, that that's just something small. Like, we'll just kind of let that go without realizing and seeing that if we do that over and over again, if we show up a minute or two late and, and show that that's all right, like, it erodes that that standard, that foundation we've set, and, like, sends the message and gives them permission to do the same. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's something small, and I think this is where a lot of times the devil is in the detail. Athletes are going to push the envelope a little bit, not because they're, again, not because they're bad people, just because yeah. that's human nature. Yeah. So when 6.45 hits, if you got a 6.45 session, and a guy is still tying his shoes... At the end, is that a big deal in the grand scheme of life? It's not. But on this team, it's a huge deal because I said be ready at 645. Look, not a big deal. Double blow the whistle. Let's just space out. Let's bang out 25. All right, guys, pop it up. You're good with me. You paid the piper. Be laced up next time. Mm-hmm. It's not personal. It's it's just it's the standard. And so I think that's where the gray area can creep in where, mm. no, the shoes aren't tied. Your shirt's not on. Like, you know, you, you, you know, anyway, so I – just, just, just toe the line. Do it the right way. Do, do what we want to, and then take pride in being the best in the world at what you do. You know, if, if we're going to do glute ham raises, let's do them at a really, really high level. Because I'm going to, I'm going to coach my face off. Mm-hmm. I want you to be the best in the world at that glute ham raise. If we're going to squat, let's be the best in the world at the squat. Because I think it's that important. I put it into your program. Let's be really, really good at it because it's got a purpose, and that purpose has to transfer. And something performed with with lackluster effort or with with poor mechanics has a lot less transference, even though there was effort. If there was bad mechanics, it's just not going to transfer or it won't transfer as well. So, again, the the standard is a standard. Um, And again, right or wrong, I don't I don't think I'm like a rigid guy. I don't think I'm a non-approachable guy. Like I've had guys call me, hey, coach, blew a tire out. But they called me 45 minutes before the lift. Right. Call me two minutes after the lift saying, hey, my tire blew out. No, nah, the alarm <laughs> didn't go off, bro. Let's, no, we'll handle it when you get here. Don't worry. You'll be good. <laughs> so, yeah, just just maintain success by never deviating from the standard. And that will get your guys locked in real quick. I mean, yeah. you're, not, you're not trying to be authoritarian. You're not, you're not trying to be militaristic. You're just, you're just holding your standard to clearly define their role, which is we do it the right way. We, we're where we're supposed to be when we need to be there, and you know, we're always going to give effort. Well, and this is the process, right? I mean, everyone yeah. says trust the process, and the process is exactly this, like attention to detail, clear definition about what the standard is. And athletes or competitors are achievement-seeking and achievement-motivated creatures. And so, yeah, people are going to buy in and lock in because you've clearly defined the process. You said this is the standard. This is what the details look like and not look like. And there is repercussions for, you know, whether you're being ignoring it, whether you're trying to, you know, duck it. Because that's, you're right, children are always testing us in terms of what is the rules. Are the rules consistent between this adult and that adult, right? And, I mean, anyone who has children or interacts with young children know you have to just maintain that air consistency to help the developmental process. And, you know, I, I'm a big fan of getting specific on what, quote unquote, trust the process means or the process. And this is what we've heard from you, Alan, is the process or parts of the process at University of Houston basketball. And so that's great. 
um, insight and thanks for sharing. I, you know, I know we're running close to the end of our time. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about squatting. Um, just yeah. because you and I share a similar definition of squatting. Some people call it deep squats. Yep. Um, but I think Al and I think of them as just squats. So, you know, I'd love you just to go on a um, description of, you know, how you define squats, why you define them that way, the benefits of squatting, when and when and where, how you guys squat, because I think there's a lot to be uh, learned for any coach almost in any athletic endeavor about uh, what I'd like to, what I call sometimes enlightened squatting and the, the type of squatting you and I practice and preach with our athletes. Yeah, so the, the squat to me is when your hamstring is covering your calf, that your knee joint is closed off and you've closed off the space in that gap, that is a, that is a full squat. Mm-hmm. I believe there is absolutely a time and a place for partial rep training, especially in the world of, of track and field. There's some great examples of using partial rep training as part of a peaking process. Mm-hmm. But the time and place is not all day, every day, right? And I think it's important to remember that health drives performance. And a healthy knee, a healthy ankle, a healthy hip is capable of closing the knee joint fully and opening the knee joint fully. Mm. Now, there's going to be some biomechanical differences. I understand how your, your, your leg fits into your hip is a big part of that. But the knee should still be able to close, even if it's in a split squat, even if it's in some capacity. And you, you can manipulate your foot positioning to get into that full depth knee closed off position. So that, that's how I define a squat. I think that what has been interesting on the U.S. side of it is that from a powerlifting perspective, there's, it has more to do with the relationship of the hip to the knee. So there's got to be a standard. How do we get three white lights? How do we know the rep is good? Is, is, was the hip parallel to the knee? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's a, that's just a standard for that sport. But now you've created a partial rep exercise. And with the partial rep exercise, you can overload it more than you can a full rep exercise. And now you're training at maybe a higher capacity than your joint can handle through a full range. Mm-hmm. So now you're overdeveloping muscle heads to other muscle heads. So now your vastus lateralis is going to be overdeveloped to your vastus medialis. And we know that vastus medialis is really, really important for protecting your knee joint and stabilizing the knee joint. <laughs> okay. So for me, I, I think it's interesting that one of the avenues we've gone down is we work around problems is, you know, well, instead of fixing the problem, let's identify the problem. Let's work to fix it. It might be a two-year fix. It might be a two-week fix, but it's going to be a process. Let's fix a problem rather than just work around it. Because one of the biggest things we see in basketball is guys' ankle mobility is terrible. (laughs) They can't, I mean, we'll have guys put their toe against the wall and they can't push their knee to touch the wall. They have that much ankle restriction, but it makes sense when you think about it. 
you're in AAU high school, you're taped up or braced year round, mm-hmm. you're a tall guy, you're sitting in class all day, or you're sitting in a bus, or you're but you're just never having to get in mobile positions. Well, that immobility is not good for longevity. And so to me, I have no problem with having a lighter squat. 200 pounds versus 350 pounds, but that 350 was a quarter squat. Right. Because now all you've done is got really, really good at reinforcing your poor mechanics. Yes. And that, that's a tough pill for me to swallow. I think that, again, there is a time and place. We, we do partial rep movements, you know, as part of our training process. But it's no different to me than a chin up. If you're in a full hang and you're pulling your sternum to the bar and you're closing your bicep to your forearm, that that's a chin up. Yep. And that has a lot of carryover. We talked about it one day to even yeah. speed development. Mm-hmm. But if all you do is do partial rep chin ups, that doesn't have much transference to anything. And the other thing that's really important to remember is we're trying to to develop human beings to be good at basketball. We don't need 400-pound squatters. Let's start at a baseline level of strength, which is can you bend all the way down and stand all the way up with good posture? If you cannot, that is a problem. Mm-hmm. If you can, let's start loading it. And I think, again, it's just one of the things where it's it's hard to do. It's It's a tough process to get guys better when they have movement problems. If you're in the NBA, you might have a guy for a few months and he gets traded. If you're in the NFL, you might have a guy for a few days and he gets cut. But if you're on my level, we have time to work through these processes. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's, it's really, really interesting because as we look at injury rates and, and I don't have numbers in front of me, but there seems to be a pretty clear consensus that across basketball, across football, injury rates are on the rise from what they've been at any point in the past. Mm -hmm. Well, if I'm looking at some things that are probably similar that people are doing now across the board, everyone is strength training, but you're overloading through poor mechanics. Yes. So your body can produce a whole lot of force, but you can't absorb it correctly. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the hard thing. It's, you know, Vern Gambetta says train the movement, not the muscles. I take that and I upgrade it to what matters more is how you move, not what you move. Yes. So in terms of we can get distracted by what you're moving. This guy squatted 500 pounds. This gal squatted 250. But how did she move the weight? How did he move the weight? How did they move their body? And this is what Jimmy Radcliffe does a really good job at at University of Oregon. He teaches people first in a deloaded fashion how to move. And when you know how to move, we can increase what you move. But a lot of us just, you know, leapfrog the how and go to the what. Oh, you squat, however you want to call a squat. If, you know, like you and I share that, if it's not ass to ankles, it's not really a squat in the movement pattern. So who cares if you can move 300 pounds when it's biomechanically corrosive? Yeah. And and I think it's important to remember that range, your range of motion is always going to dictate your load. 
Yeah. But in my mind, your range of motion is more important than your load. Mm -hmm. Because if you sacrifice range for load, you are not going to necessarily be able to get that range back. But if you never sacrifice your range, you will always be able to drive your load up. Mm -hmm. It might be a little bit of a longer process, but it can be a never ending process. And so, you know, just, just never sacrifice your rep integrity and your movement quality for a number. That that just doesn't make sense to me. And this is the, the, the difficulty in like our little uh, distance running world is we are very load driven because load, and there is a lot of research that demonstrates increased load creates increased fitness. And it's true from the metabolic functions and physiological functions. However, I advocate year-round sprinting precisely for that purpose of making sure the range of motion that one athlete is capable of producing is not sacrificed. Because a lot of times if you're just sitting there running 100 mile weeks at a certain cadence or tempo without any other range of motion work, that creates, you know, again, different range of motion issues, which are overuse injuries, and then you're on the shelf. What I've found is year-round sprinting, it's one of the most purest and easiest to do plyometrics in the world that allows you to get a full range of motion in the running mechanic that has positive impacts at slower speed. So you can, as you said, increase the load. So if you sprint one or two days a week, you can then increase globally the load for your skill-specific um, action, whether it's training for a marathon or a 5K or a 10. But it's, it's good to hear these parallels being championed by someone who's in a weight room setting, working with athletes who are running up and down a court and jumping vertically you know, for their competitive activity. So more than anything, I'm just glad that we're able to build this bridge and show how these heuristics or principles are important for any athlete, you know, that is competing in sport and also too for longevity of health for their life life. I mean, we know that when old older elderly people fall down and lose mobility, their life expectantly expectantly sharply declines thereafter that loss of mobility. And it's the same situation. A mobile body is a healthy body. Health drives performance, I agree a hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe to sum this things up, um, I think if I hope our listeners take anything away, it's like the, um, it's almost that I'm not going to say the sport doesn't matter because it does in deciding what, you know, what you're trying to get after, but the parallels between sports, between lifting, between running, all that stuff, I think is one of the most neglected and, you know, uh, misunderstood areas because, at the end of the day, we're training human beings and we're training training them how to move correctly and then enhancing that quality of movement or enduring that quality of movement. And I think those parallels, hopefully you've seen or listened to in this conversation, cross domains. And the more that we can uh, learn and understand that, I think the better it makes us as coaches in our, our own sport. And some sometimes stepping outside of sport allows us or our own sport allows us to get rid of some of those dogmatic beliefs that we've held on for for uh, so long because they've been so ingrained. So hopefully you took uh, a lot of that out of this, and hopefully you take the time to think 
And as Alan said at the beginning of this is try to not just digest this, but take away one key message from, you know, the topics that you've heard on how you might change or influence your own coaching program. Cool. Thanks, Steve. Alan, thanks for coming on. That was fun. We have to, we'll have to do this again when you uh, get a little bit of daylight and in March. <laughs> if, if you don't mind, can I, can I, can I do something? I, I, I try to ask who I would consider high level thinkers or people who are yeah, like yeah, experts yeah. in their field. Um, and, and I'll give you a quick second to think about it. And you're probably gonna get mad at me that I'm putting you on the spot for this, but in the last year to the last two years, what has been the biggest paradigm shift or the most impactful paradigm shift that you've had with how you train your athletes, whether it's something you never used to do that now you do something you used to you used to do that you took out, you've had a change of heart on, but what has been the biggest or most impactful paradigm shift you've had? For me, it's movement quality without a doubt. Um, I look back, I was telling my wife this year day, I look back at the training loads and plans I prescribed athletes even two, three years ago. And I just cringe because it's a lot of load and a lot of intensity relative to their movement ability. And in running we just can't escape movement quality, the repetition of steps on steps on steps. I mean, if you think about it, uh, in an hour long run, someone's taking up nine to 10,000 steps over and over and over again. If that movement is not sound, the whole ability for the athlete to train, to compete at their highest functioning level is compromised. So now I look at movement quality with a very, um, very sharp microscope. And it's been about three and a half years of a journey, you know, seeking out strength and conditioning coaches, talking to sprint coaches, jump coaches, throw coaches, you name it. Anyone who has a sharp eye for how the quality of movement of a movement pattern impacts a person's ability to, one, repeatedly do that at a high level and get better at it without hurting themselves, I've sought that person out Um and just learn from them. And it's fundamentally changed how I coach. It fundamentally changes what I prioritize because I've realized that that is a huge limiting factor that we can't do all the fun, cool, complex stuff of talking about training theory and applying these different types of energy system development protocols or whatever, unless that movement sound, because it interrupts, right? It interrupts the training cycle. And, you know, Charlie Munger said it best with compounding interest because that's what training is. The best way to um, get the impact of compounding interest is not interrupt it unnecessarily. And anytime someone is forced because of an overuse injury, which is the majority of what we see, we don't have many impact injuries in distance running, is it's a self-imposed exit out of that compounding interest cycle as a self-imposed pause of it. And we don't need to self-impose it if we can dial in and get better at how we coach and how we help people move. Because the reality is a lot of people have a rough concept and a rough sketch on how to run. But it's not like figure skating where in figure skating, there's one right way. Otherwise, you fall on the ice. In running, we can get by on this rough sketch to a certain point. But unless we uh, refine that rough sketch and make it more um, fluent – and make it more 
biomechanically sound, we are going to hit a training and competitive ceiling over and over and over again. And so it's for me, it's getting people to be more worried about things like pendular thigh oscillation, right? Just like sounds complex, but where are the thighs in relation to each other as they swing through the gait cycle at different points in the gait cycle? And then communicating that to athletes in a simple way so that they can get it, so they can do it, so they can feel it, and then they can, you know, go on their way and do what they want to do, which is run faster. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, the past year or two, I think probably the, the biggest thing for me has been um, kind of getting away from this, like, physiologically dominated bias where we're designing workouts to elicit some sort of physiological response and adaptation to more so understanding, hey, this is what I want physiologically, but what am I trying to get from a mental psychology standpoint? And like, how am I designing this workout to get them to work on this specific thing? Um, and also having intent while doing it. Because in our sport, what happens a lot is you get athletes who like because of the grind of training is you almost figure your way how to get through workouts. So it becomes, okay, I'm going to do this many 400 repeats and here's how I'm going to survive. Mm. And surviving doesn't translate to competing because if you're just trying to survive in the race, you're not going to compete. So I spent a lot of time figuring out, okay, what, psychological state do I want them to be? What do I want them to be focused on and um, putting their intent on? And how does that translate into racing? You know, not going down a rabbit hole, but this really opened my mind when I, I, I started asking athletes what they were like focused on during workouts and then what they were focused on during races. And it was two different things. <laughs> and in my mind, I'm thinking, well, we should be training that focus and practice for what they're going to do in a race. It should be the same thing because the mind's a muscle. We can develop it. So really putting a lot of thought into, uh, into that aspect. And then also with athletes figuring out how do I cue this? How do I design this? How do I figure out when to get them to stay mentally focused on a task and all that good stuff? Mm. I love that. And Alan, if you have time, same question to you. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's a couple that I have. Um, one of them is from a training standpoint. One thing that I've been wanting to do for a while, but I didn't quite know how to implement it because, again, everything's a trade-off. So my thought was, if I put this in, what am I going to take out? Because there's a million good things you can do. You can't make them do all one million of them. Okay. Sure. But there's a strength coach by the name of Dan John. And I think Dan John is a, a really pragmatic guy mm-hmm. that, that does a lot of really good things. And I actually spent some time with him, uh, over two summers ago. So before last season and spent some time talking with him about implementing loaded carries. Mm-hmm. So from a standpoint of our in-season training last year, I typically will alternate intensification and accumulation blocks about every two weeks. Sometimes it's three, sometimes it's four. It's just kind of based off our travel and game schedule. Uh, but, but typically it's every two weeks. 
And what I did is I said, you know what, I'm just, I just got to throw it in there. So we started doing accumulation blocks where we would do a little bit more loaded carries as a way to get some volume and work without taking a huge toll on their nervous system. Because you don't have to do 12 reps of squat mm. to get accumulation. Maybe we can just walk you up and down the hallway with a couple of, you know, 40 kilo kettlebells in each hand. And so that that's kind of been a shift that I thought worked really well for us last year. Um, and so along those same lines, just thinking, how can we preserve the nervous system a little bit during an accumulation block? Um, I started implementing a little bit more of Hatfield squats, uh, which... You know, essentially just using the safety bar, holding the handles, you take out some of those proprioceptive components of of a standard squat so you can get your volume up and it's just not going to quite have the same toll on your nervous system. So from a training standpoint, um, I think I think that's done well for us, especially in season last year and we're already starting it this year. So uh, from a training standpoint, that that is something that I like and I'm going to continue to to work with. And I'll tell you this one, you know, like we said, or like I said, you know, if you're going to read a book, if you're going to do something, you better have a, a huge takeaway. Um, I, I'm, I am a meathead at heart. And, and again, I love, love Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, you know, hero of mine. So, uh, so when I was reading his biography, um, he, he had a section of it that really stuck out to me. And it was, it was actually talking about, uh, you know, his interactions with his wife. And he said one of the things that he didn't realize at the, or maybe it wasn't that he didn't realize at the time, but one of the ways he, he was different from his wife was he wants to make a decision and move on with life. What are we doing? We're doing this decision made. Let's go. And his wife was, was more of the, well, if we make that decision, here's the three possible outcomes. Hmm. We can make that decision, tweak one variable, and here's three more possible outcomes. And if we take one of those outcomes, we can tweak it, you know, so, and we've, we've all had those conversations where essentially somebody just wants to talk through all the different what ifs and, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's, it's something interesting because again, we were talking about, you know, I made a comment earlier about, you know, I, I really do. I have the, the best wife in the world, the most supportive wife in the world. I mean, you got to have that in this, in this field. Um, it was just an interesting paradigm shift because the best advice that I ever got uh, about your home life. And it was very simple. It was from Darby Rich, who's actually up at Memphis with basketball right now. He said, when you are home, be home. Okay. And so when I'm home, I mean, I actively try to be home, but that's one of the things during conversation. I just like, baby, I made a decision. Like, why are we still talking about this? <laughs> and so again, it's not that it's right or wrong. It's just, just how our brains work a little bit different. And so it was kind of mm -hmm. interesting because reading that and not having ever thought about it until I read it on paper saying, wow, this is actually, this is two different lines of thought. And again, it's not right or wrong. It's just two different things. I think it's actually lowered my stress level because when I get home from work, the last thing I want to do is deal with more problems. And if we're talking something out, it's because it's a problem. Like, no, no, we solved the problem. Here's a solution. That's how I want to handle it. And so it's just been interesting because from a home life, I feel like hopefully I'm being a better husband because of it. Cause I, I just have an understanding now of like, Oh man, you were kind of being a jerk for the last 12 <laughs> years. Like your wife just wants to talk things out, you know? Uh, but again, it's just been an interesting paradigm shift knowing, you know what? Like I just had never really thought of it that way. Um, and I think I'm a little bit more maybe patient 
with the the standpoint of, yeah, we can talk this out. That's how you operate. That's how you like it. Where in the past, I was just trying to solve the problem. Like, baby, mm. like, baby, here's a solution. What are you talking about? Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. like no, no, we can talk it out. We can, we can, we can hear it out. I, I get where you're coming from. So, so that, that was kind of a, like me just being a, a complete soft ass and going down that road. But, <laughs> but that's been an interesting one in, in the last few months that I think is, uh, has been a kind of a personal paradigm shift. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Cause I'm the same way. I'm just like problem solved done. Yep. You know, and I think that's how a lot of us kind of get in the stuff. So just having that appreciation and that understanding of that two different dichotomies is great. Well, we appreciate you coming and uh, hanging out with us and having the conversation. So, yeah, you're welcome back anytime. I feel, I feel like we just scratched the surface. So, well, I might take you up on that. So be careful. <laughs> <laughs>